0: the Upper Cumberland is filled with rich history that helped to shape our country to what we live in today. Join Abbott historian Troy Smith as he will tell you tales of characters and events that happened in your backyard. Mountain True starts now. Welcome to Mountain True. I'm your host, Troy Smith. I'm an uh, associate uh, professor of history at Tennessee Tech. Uh, Mountain True every... Uh, Every episode, we will be delving into some historical facts about the Upper Cumberland. Uh, I myself, in in addition to working now in the Upper Cumberland, I was born in White County and worked for many years in Cumberland County as well as Putnam County where I uh, went to Tennessee Tech and got my graduate degree and have been working for the last several years. So I have some close connections as you do probably if you're if you're listening to this, but you may be unaware of the many connections that the Upper Cumberland has on a broader scale. Um just a little bit more about myself. In addition to being a history professor, I am a writer. Uh, you can go to my website, www.troyduanesmith.com. That's D-U-A-N-E. Uh, or you can uh, you can Google me. Anyhow. Uh, What we're going to be discussing today is Supreme Court Justice John Catron. Now, maybe you're familiar with that name, but most people around here are not. He's not someone who is currently serving on the Supreme Court. He served, oh, almost 200 years ago. He was, in fact, the 26th Supreme Court Justice. Brett Kavanaugh, the most recent one, is the 114th. The reason we're discussing John Catron is because he was from the Upper Cumberland. Now, before I get into too much more detail, I wanted to be sure to acknowledge the work of a couple of my colleagues who have done a lot of research on John Catron. Uh, John Nisbet and Michael Birdwell, my colleague at Tennessee Tech, in fact, uh the two of them wrote an essay in a book called uh, *People of the Upper Cumberland*, that came out in 2015. I had a chapter in there about Champ Ferguson. I was very proud to be included in that book. It won the um, won the award from the Tennessee Library Association for best Tennessee history book of the year. So you should you should check that out. All right. Well, John Catron was born in 1786. Uh, Some sources say 1779, uh, it varies. Um, And no one is exactly sure exactly where he was born, either Pennsylvania or Virginia, most likely born in Pennsylvania. And his family moved to Virginia when he was very young. When he was a young man um, in the early 1800s, his family moved to White County. Now, uh, his family were, were farmers. He was uh, uh, a farm boy, very much uh, a a laboring person. Um, he sometimes uh, uh, would drive hogs to market down down the uh, down the old Kentucky road. But when he was in his in his twenties, he started studying law. He was self educated for the most part. Um, widely read, and he had befriended a local lawyer in Sparta whose name was uh, George Washington Gibbs. So he, as, as the expression, expression went, quote, read law under George Gibbs starting in 1812. I uh, did that for, for several years with a, uh, a break in there to join the militia, Uh, to be involved in the Creek War in 1813. Uh, He only served uh, in the military for a few months. He had to be discharged because of illness, which was actually a fairly common thing at that time. Same thing happened to young Abraham Lincoln a quarter century later in the Black Hawk War. Anyhow, he returned to Sparta, continued his law studies, and passed the bar in 1815. And started a law practice in Sparta. Um, he wound up, even though he was from very humble origins, he wound up um, moving in some higher circles. When he married um, his wife, Sarah, who was the granddaughter of James Robertson, one of the early luminaries of Tennessee. Perhaps you have heard of his parkway. Uh, and she was also the cousin of James K. Polk's wife. So started moving a little bit in, in high society. He practiced law in Sparta for about three years, during which time he was the city attorney, the prosecutor. In 1818, he was, uh, he was convinced by Andrew Jackson, whose path he was crossing fairly frequently, to to move to Nashville. Now, if, if you're familiar with Andrew Jackson, you know that he had been an attorney in Nashville. You're listening to Mountain True, part of the Henson Oakley podcast from the Henson Oakley Podcast Center, Henson Oakley Family Dentistry on West Jackson Street in Cookville, now offering Zoom teeth whitening. So, Catron uh, left Sparta, and moved to Nashville, but he kept his property in White County. He he served in Nashville, this time as a defense attorney, for several years until 1824, at which time he was appointed to the Tennessee Supreme Court. He served there for about 10 years, from 1824 to 1834. The last three years, he was the Chief Justice of the Tennessee Supreme Court. Oddly enough, that was a new position. Before 1831, there was no chief justice. So he was actually the first chief justice of the Tennessee Supreme Court. Um, Served there until 1834 um, as chief justice. Later on, went back into private practice briefly, after which he was appointed by Andrew Jackson, of whom he was a friend, a fan, and a great admirer and supporter uh, appointed by Jackson to the Supreme Court of the United States, well, that in itself is really is really fascinating. most people don't know. I never knew until a few years ago that my own hometown had produced a uh, an associate Justice of the united states Supreme Court why Why don't more people know that? Well, I think part of the reason may be that Although he was remembered by history for a long time, in more recent decades, a couple of his cases that he served on, uh, both in the Tennessee Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, do not reflect favorably, I think, on him. So uh, maybe that's why he was kind of shuffled to the side. So we're going to talk about those cases probably in the, the next uh, the next episode. Uh, I want to spend this time talking a little bit about what sort of what sort of lawyer he was, and some of the positions that he took. Now, I mentioned that he was a big fan and supporter of Andrew Jackson. Um, they had kind of similar backgrounds. Uh, if you're familiar with with Jackson's history, you know that. He did not have an elite background at all, but he sort of worked his way up into that uh, position and, like Catron, also in in part married into it. Well, Catron, some of the positions that he took as both a, a lawyer and later a judge and as a justice was, like Jackson, he was opposed to the idea of a national bank. He was also anti-corporate. He did not approve of big business, uh, I guess you could say, having uh, a lot of of leeway from the government. Uh, In fact, this almost sounds like a 21st century position, but at one point he stated that corporations are not citizens and should not be treated as such. This is probably uh, a good indication of it's, it's a reflection of his his working class roots he tended to to side with the the common folks the uh, the laborers and their rights um he was a slave owner he owned i think 6 in the 1830 census and each subsequent decade that number had increased he was a supporter of slavery at the same time he had some some positions on on slavery and and the treatment of individual slaves that differed somewhat from from sort of the norm in that case he believed and argued sometimes and ruled from the bench that slaves were in fact human beings. And that sounds like a crazy thing to have to say, doesn't it? But during that time, by the 1820s and 30s, a lot of people were defending slavery more than ever in the South because the cotton economy was becoming so entangled with slavery and such a big part of, of people's lives and lifestyle uh, that the reinforcement of the idea that People of African descent, especially if they were enslaved were not even human, was, was common. So by saying that they were human beings, he was further arguing that they therefore had natural rights. If you've, if you've read your Declaration of Independence, which was written by another slaveholder, you know that uh, these are sometimes called unalienable or inalienable rights. That was kind of uh, that was kind of a bold departure for a, a Southern judge, at that time. Nonetheless, his his positions with slavery were kind of um, like Jefferson, kind of complicated. In fact, here's another thing he had in common with Thomas Jefferson: he had a relationship with a female slave named Sally. It wasn't his slave; it was uh, uh, she had. Um, Belonged to a family in Nashville who rented her out as a laundress. And we don't know very many details at all. We only know that he fathered a child with her. She was 36 years old at the time. She named her son James. Later on, he was known as James Thomas. He gained his freedom before the Civil War started. As an adult, he was successful in Nashville as a barber, And later after the war, uh, he was found uh, in St. Louis buying a property worth a quarter of a million dollars. So he was pretty successful in his own right. You might think it was due to the connections that he gained through his biological father, but he said that, so far as he knew, his father had one time given him a quarter, and that was all he had ever received from him. So, much like the U.S. South and the U.S. at the time. A very complicated and and complex relationship when it comes to race and slavery for John Catron. Now, the next thing that we will talk about will be his relationship with Native Americans, which would be equally as complex. You've been listening to Mountain True. Download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Hinson Oakley Podcast Center.